Have you ever wondered what it's like to witness a murder? Forrest grabbed the knife and then just stabbed Johnny in one motion. Or how it feels to be shot. I was immediately hit by a barrage of bullets. Or how you would react if your spouse hired someone to kill you. And he was to put me in a grave with a bullet wound on my head. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a stalking victim. Came back upstairs and when I came back and turned the corner into my room, I saw him standing there. You'll hear from a man who was kidnapped and tortured. I would do anything, say anything, to simply get away. And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com. This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Fruit Loops, episode 78. Thank you so much for listening. Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and their victims that we don't hear or know much about. Now, contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are straight cisgender white dudes. No! (laughs) There are many well-documented cases of serial killers of color, and Fruit Loops is a podcast all about them. We will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and their victims that the media and entertainment commonly leave out because the news is racist, allegedly. And we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy. I'm Beth. We're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists. Just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. Please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294. And we may feature it on a future episode. Also, our website is fruitloopspod.com and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all of our social media. Join the discussion by using the hashtag Fruit Loops Pod Discussion or by joining our Facebook group. All of the footnotes for each episode can be found on our website. Yes, everything Beth said is true. Now, if you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash App. Just Google Fruit Loops Pod Cash App. Or you can become a monthly patron through our Podbean patron page. We also have some merch for sale on our website. But if you can't help monetarily, no problem, man. You can always give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. And this is the most important part. Be sure to share our show with your friends. Yeah. So. Are we talking about today, Beth? Today we're talking about Kenneth Erskine, 
also known as the Stockwell Strangler, a British serial killer who committed the murders of at least seven people. They were all senior citizens, men and women, in London, and the murders occurred between April and July of 1986. Police also suspected Erskine of four other murders. London town. So uh, <laughs> before we get to the story, how you doing? I'm okay. Uh, this has been a rough week for me. Uh, work has been uh, crazy. Um, as you know, we did a software yeah. upgrade. And so I had to work over the weekend uh, testing they it. And- Beth come in on a Saturday, <laughs> y'all. How good day. <laughs> yeah, so I worked on the weekend and then uh today was when the uh upgrade was implemented and uh things were not going right. People were confused. Shit happened. So, yeah, it's been crazy, but other than that, I'm I'm doing pretty good. Okay. Okay, well, I'm glad that you're all right. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Um let's see. Still in the quar. Um, yeah, yeah. Trying to not get the Rona. Right. Um, and, uh, yeah, just keeping it, keeping it moving, trying to keep everybody occupied. I did, today was my day off. So, uh, I took over the homeschooling and boy, oh boy, is it challenging. (laughs) 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 I miss our teachers every day. (laughs) I know. I saw a picture of somebody's, uh, car they had written on it with like that paint the car paint you know on the windows Uh shoe polish or whatever and Mm -hmm. it said uh, teachers you lied my kids are not a joy to have in class (laughs) (laughs) seriously like my son is so like he's doing everything he can to get out of the work and um, it's like oh man it's just so annoying frustrating yeah Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. um so but um, there are worse things. I could be dead. Yes. So yeah, definitely <laughs> uh, worse things. Yes. So now we are going to dive into some listener letters here. Well, hello, angels. Thank you. Hello. What's in the bag, Beth? So I got a little note from Danielle and she just said, you guys are awesome. So thank you, Danielle. We think you're awesome too. Hip hop -hop air horns to you. (laughs) And I got a little longer note from Amelia RN and this was posted some time ago and I didn't see it until uh, the other day. So I apologize. This is late. Um, And that happens sometimes we, we miss your posts or, or, uh, messages and we apologize, but uh, we do try to read them all. But in any case, Amelia RN said, I think it's important that when you talk about homophobia in black and brown communities to acknowledge the reason it can be so prominent is still white supremacy, starting mm. with the fact that colonizers enforce the idea of two genders and heteronormativity from the get go. But Also specifically leading up to during and following the civil rights, the strong push for heteronormativity along with the nuclear family, trying to be like the perfect family, the way that white folks were portrayed in the media. All of that makes it harder to be queer and black. Mm. There are lots of articles and smarter people than me with actual details to discuss this stuff. I just wish there was as much acknowledgement of these factors when we touch on the specific harshness of homophobia in our community. Ooh, so thank you, Amelia. Thank yeah. you, Amelia. 
Yes, that is true. Um, so- sometimes it can be um, sort of difficult to, I guess, identify the reasons why homophobia is so prominent in black and brown communities. Um, but she just uh, gave us the words. So thank yeah. you. Thank you very um, much. Yes, we appreciate it. Uh, for this is from Casey Ty's mom on IG. She said, Wendy, I think a face mask with Santa Maria on it would be red. <laughs> that would be red. Air- <laughs> that would be red. All the hip hop air horns to you from Cleveland. I'd love one if you make them, though I don't have a source of independent income. Maybe a family member will pick pick it up for me. Sigh. Uh, and uh, Casey and I sort of went back and forth about how my mom still hasn't bought a mug. Uh, but I just, <laughs> I just want to say that that is an excellent idea. Um, and one we got more than once. Uh, that is not the oh, first good. request for yeah, that. Yeah, we'll have to do uh, that one for sure. Yeah. Yeah. We also got a suggestion from Rondika, I think. Yeah. Rondika. To put don't fact check me on a t-shirt. <laughs> lovely <laughs> ideas. Keep the ideas. Keep the lovely notes and the hey girl haze. Um, even corrections. Sometimes we get stuff wrong. So just keep them coming. Hip hop air horns to all of you in our community. Yeah. Our listeners, we love you so yeah, thank you. much. Um, so yeah. now we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to dive into the story when we come back. Splash, splash. So I bought a whole bunch of new products from uh, The Butters. I bought a shampoo bar and a different kind of leave-in conditioner. Ooh. Yeah, and and I like it even more than the other one. (laughs) (laughs) This this stuff is like crack. (laughs) It is. It is, but not like the bad kind that can get you sent to jail. Or the kind that will burn your edges or your scalp. You know, they call relaxers creamy crack. But this creamy crack is good for your hair and nourishing. And again, um, I've said this before. We have three people of color in this house and everybody has a different curl pattern. And this stuff works great on all of our hair. Um, That's awesome. So it's it's exciting. It's it is very when, exciting. When, <laughs> yeah, when when you find a product that works, you're. I mean, you just you just want to love, and you can't so you can't happy. Go without it. Yeah. You're so happy. Yeah, because yeah. you know, having curly hair, and I have kinky hair, and um, it's hard to find um, products that really work. Um, yeah, and so it is just so nice when you. It's find a joy. It. Yes, yes. <laughs> I'm overjoyed. That's how excited I am. My husband was like, "Can you order some more of that stuff?" <laughs> Our kids' hair is good, right? Yeah, it's good. It's really good stuff. Yeah, and uh, the company too. I'm so uh, happy that we can support a company that is 100% black and queer owned. That's awesome. Oh yes hip-hop air horns there we go yeah so get the butters.com go there yeah oh and follow them on instagram yeah i think it's at the butters company something like that check them out on instagram and we're back so uh (laughs) beth who are we talking about today again we're talking about kenneth erskine also known as the Stockwell Strangler, a British serial killer who committed at least seven murders during a very short period of time. Mm-hmm. He was on fire. Um, so now we're going to get into the stats here. 
All right. Kenneth Erskine, uh, a.k.a. the Faceless Monster, a.k.a. the Heat Wave Killer, a.k.a. the Stockwell Strangler, was born on July 1st, 1963 in the Hammersmith area of London in the UK to a white British mother named Margaret and an Antiguan father named Charles. This case has an element of gerontophilia, which is sexual attraction to elderly uh, to his crimes. His MO was to attack, beat, sexually assault, and strangle geriatric men and women. After he would kill them, he would position them so it looked like they were sleeping peacefully. His seven known victims were, uh, speak their names, rest in power, kings and queens. Nancy Eileen Ems was 78, Janet Cockett, 67, Valentine Gleam, 84, and Zbigniew Strabawa was 94. Wow. William Carmen was 84. William Downs was 74. And Florence Tisdall was 83. Um, the crimes took place in the South London neighborhood of Stockwell, and Erxine was arrested on July 28, 1986. Uh, so now we're going to dive into the setting. Take us there, Beth. The setting is Stockwell in the borough of Lambeth in South London. Stockwell was first recorded in 1197, and I always uh, find these interesting because uh, the UK is such an old place. Mm-hmm. 1197, just think about that. That's a long time ago. <laughs> that is a long time ago. <laughs> the Stockwell ghost was a supposed poltergeist that created a great sensation in 1772. But it turned out to be a hoax when Anne Robinson, a maidservant, admitted to creating the disturbances. Come on, Anne. Um, <laughs> why you got to do that? Why you got to do that, Anne? Uh, Stockwell became the southern terminus of London's first deep tube line in 1890. It is one of eight London underground stations with adjacent deep level air raid shelters constructed during World War II. Stockwell's shelter was split into upper and lower levels with connecting branch tunnels used for medical posts, lavatories, and ventilation. That reminds me of the movie Us, like underground. Oh, yeah, right, yeah. right. Yeah. The rabbits and Lupita Nyong'o. Yes, it looked kind of like a school. Yeah. 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 Sorry, tangent. That's all right. Uh, the total capacity of the shelter was around 4,000 people. Access was through the station as well as spiral staircases through two entrance shafts. It was used for just one year as a shelter. One of the entrances has been brightly decorated and is a recognizable local landmark in Stockwell. Oh, that sounds cool. Yeah, I'd like to see that. Yeah, there was a lot going on in London in the mid-1980s and tensions were high. There were riots in September of 1985 sparked by the shooting of Dorothy Cherry Grossi, a black woman, by the Metropolitan Police while they sought her 21-year-old son, Michael Grossi, in relation to a suspected firearms offense. They believe Michael Grossi was hiding in his mother's home at the time. After two days of riots between police and mostly Black protesters, photojournalist David Hodge had died, and 43 civilians and 10 police officers were hurt. There were numerous fires One building was destroyed, 55 cars had been burned, and 58 burglaries had been committed, including acts of looting. 
Welcome to Culture Corner with Wendy and Beth. Uh, this is another instance where the media shows its true racist colors. In a crisis, when white people are looking for supplies, the media refers to them as finding food or finding supplies. But when a black indigenous person of color does it, they refer to it as looting for food. One yeah. is much more sinister sounding than the other. Yeah. But there you go. Yeah. And they also use photographs, too, when white people are finding supplies, you know, mm -hmm. they just look like sad or whatever. And but when they show photos of black people, they just look like they're just going Angry. nuts, you know? Yeah. Yes. Or going yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Wilding yeah. out. Yeah. 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 It's shitty. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yes, it is. Also in 1986, there were prison riots all over the country over working and living conditions. During the chaos, dozens of prisoners escaped and they were not all apprehended. The trial of Patrick McGee, the Brighton bomber, also took place in 1986. He was on trial for planting a bomb at the Grand Brighton Hotel, meant to target the Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher and her cabinet. Five people <laughs> were killed that day on October 12th, 1984. Stockwell was a rundown place in the 80s. One source said that you may not want to walk around alone at night. There was a lot of petty crime, drug sales, and stabbings. It was also a time and place of social, political, and racial unrest. But Stockwell was a place where a lot of elderly folks retired to because there was a lot of council housing, which in the UK is public housing that is rented to people who are unable to afford the rent from the private sector. Look at them take care of their, their citizens. Uh, there was also a lot of old folks' homes. On July 22nd, 2005, police wrongly identified Jean-Charles de Menezes, a Brazilian electrician, as a suspect in the London bombings of July 7th, 2005, in which 52 people were killed. When Menezes boarded a tube train at Stockwell, officers shot him seven times at close range without warning. Jesus, híjole, come on, guys. Yeah. Afterwards, a small shrine to Menezes was created by mourners outside the station. This evolved into a permanent memorial mosaic, which was unve unveiled on January 7th, 2010 at the station. And I looked that mosaic up and it's really beautiful. Really? Oh, yeah. You heard it from the artist herself, everybody. Go <laughs> check it out. <laughs> According to the 2011 census, 28.5% of Stockwell's residents are Black or Black British. A quarter of the population is non-British white, including a large Portuguese community. And um, I was reading uh, an article, uh, one of the articles that we will link in our, our footnotes, about people of color coming to uh, the U.K. Mm -hmm. when the UK had a, a like worker shortage and a lot of people from uh, like Africa and India that they had colonized. And the, these people were actually British citizens because they lived in the colonies. So they came ah. to Britain to, mm -hmm. this was after I think World War II, um, mm -hmm. to, to live and to work. And at that time, there was a lot of uh, racial... Uh, well, well, whenever whenever there's an influx of immigrants or people right. of color into... White homogenous society. Yeah. yeah. 
um they white people like panic yeah like, yeah and that's that's what happened <laughs> yeah so it was a really interesting article oh int- it, it was a, a worker shortage so they needed these people and right. uh yeah it was a really interesting article so we'll link that in the footnotes it's in a, a magazine a british magazine Oh, uh, fantastic. About, yeah, yeah, about uh, enterprise or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> but we'll link it. <laughs> cool, 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 cool. So now we're going to dive into the killer's early life. So Kenneth Erkstein was born, as we said, in Hammersmith, London on July 1st, 1963, to a British mother and Antiguan father. He was one of four brothers. The family later moved to Putney, uh, where Kenneth grew up. He's remembered by neighbors as a chubby Bible reading boy, but his behavior caused concern even from a young age. At age eight, he had an average level IQ, but he clearly had emotional problems. His parents divorced when he was 12, leaving his mother to raise him and his brothers alone. But he soon became too difficult for his mother to control, so he was sent to a series of special schools for troubled kids. There are some reports that he would show girls his genitals, and he once started a fire at school. As he grew up, he became more violent, and he started to act out physically. He frequently attacked teachers and fellow students. He stabbed a teacher in the hand with scissors and he pushed a kid off of a moving bus. He tried to hang his younger brother John twice and on a school sponsored swimming outing he tried to drown several other students by holding their heads underwater. He was regarded by the people who cared for him at his schools as sadistic. When he was 15 he was no longer welcome at any of the schools that he had attended and he was again living with his mother. She kicked him out of the house though when he tried to force his younger brother to smoke weed. (gasps) Santa Maria. He never saw any of his family members again. Kenneth was homeless or a person experiencing homelessness. He slept outside what the British call sleeping rough wherever he could and began stealing for money. By the age of 16, he was a drug user, mostly weed and sniffing glue, and he was already known to the police having been arrested for burglary multiple times. So my impression is if you are getting arrested multiple times for burglary, then maybe that's not your bag. Like, maybe you're not that good at it. Not a good career for you. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, He he was a homeless person for uh, seven years or a person experiencing homelessness because uh, when we know better, we do better and we say better things. Um, Drifting around London, mostly Brixton and Stockwell, squatting in abandoned houses or sleeping rough, he did drugs doing drugs <laughs> and uh, would rob from the elderly. And he was repeatedly arrested. When he was 17, he was arrested for breaking into a dental hospital. It was his fifth offense that year. So he was sent to a Borstal, which is a type of youth detention center in the UK. Borstals were run by the prison service and were intended as reformatories. And I read that the one that the particular one that he was sent to was uh, notorious for uh, being abusive and uh, not a good place. That's really unfortunate. Yeah. His cellmate there, James Dole, uh, has described him as a very weird individual who always spoke very quietly, almost in a whisper, like Michael Jackson style. Yeah. Um, 
And James was Kenneth's only friend there. Kenneth took up painting and drawing, and his paintings were disturbing, to say the least. One painting that James remembered was of a woman standing with her torso cut from neck to abdomen, hands held out, holding a heart, blood dripping everywhere and pooling on the floor. Her face was made to look like she was screaming. According to James, while he was working on this, Kenneth was smiling and laughing to himself. Oh, my. Um, that boy different. A very weird individual indeed. <laughs> yeah, he's he different. Uh, Kenneth's, <laughs> Kenneth's paintings covered the wall of the cell he shared with James. He also had a sketchbook filled with hundreds more. Most of the pictures were of mutilated elderly men and women, and many had some sort of deviant sexual imagery. Kenneth was exhibiting signs of gerontophilia, which is the opposite of pedophilia. Instead of a sexual focus on young children, he had a sexual focus on the elderly. According to some experts, it's evidence of a sexual relationship with a much older person while one is growing up. But we don't know enough about Erskine to know who he might have had such a relationship with. Yeah, we can only speculate because he did go to all those special schools. Right. we don't know reformatory yeah Um, it is also worth noting that gerontophilia can be expressed with consenting elderly partners in a legal context thank you uh in fact one of the first cases studied but was documented in a paper by french physician charles ferret in 1905 ferret described a 27-year-old man who rejected an arranged marriage with a 20-year-old quote-unquote beauty in favor of a 62-year-old woman. I also think of that movie. What was that movie? Uh, do you know what I'm talking about? You lost me. Harold and Maude. Never heard of it. You never saw that one? No, it's about a, a teenage boy, or I don't know, maybe he's like 18 or something, who falls in love with an elderly woman. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Look, I... I don't, I, I'm not a, a male, but I have always been attracted to older men. Um, I love me a silver fox. <laughs> uh, That's going to come in handy as you <laughs> Well, you know, old, old whitey, can I speak to a manager is 10 years older than me. Right, right. Did you know, did I ever tell you my uh, dad was nine years older than my mom? I think you have told me that. And yeah. your parents' love story is so, like so cute. It makes me want to throw up. They loved, they loved each other so much. Like, didn't you say yeah. that your dad joined the choir just to spend more time with yeah, them? Yeah. That is so sweet. <laughs> Shout out to functional adult relationships. (laughs) Yeah, I don't have one, so. (laughs) Oh, boy, oh, boy. Yeah, but my my parents did have a good story. (laughs) Yeah, they did. Okay, I'm sorry. I just, I love your, I love hearing stories about your parents. Thank you. (laughs) Where are we? Oh, oh, uh, so, um, 
I don't know how to get back in here after that. (laughs) (laughs) We're talking about my parents' love story, and all of a sudden I'm talking about sex offenders. offenders. Yeah. All right. Okay, so going back into the story. All right. Also, sex offenders with elderly victims do not necessarily have gerontophilia. There are other possible motivations for these offenses, such as rage or sadism or the increased vulnerability of the elderly as a social group, which are factors that may not involve a sexual preference for the elderly. They're just right. Uh, They're a, a vulnerable population, which serial right. killers target. And yeah, again, um, rape is uh, not necessarily all about sex. It's a lot right. of it is about power. power. In any case. Yeah. A detective came and knocked on the door and I said, is it Renee? And he just gave me that solemn look. It was the worst day ever. The Proof Podcast is back with a new case and a new season. 23 years ago, 18-year-old Renee Ramos went missing. Her body was later found in an empty Home Depot building on the edge of town. I don't think that they arrested the right people. It's about time somebody's trying to do something. She had a black eye about two weeks before she was murdered. They are involved. They definitely had her body and her backpack. You know people are going to judge you, right? Of course. They're judging me now. They've been judging me damn near my whole life. You can listen now to season two of Proof, wherever you get your podcasts. And follow along with us as we reinvestigate the murder at the warehouse. I have to ask, did you kill Renee? True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there. We are gathered here today to give you permission to plan the wedding that you want. I'm Jessica Bishop. And I'm Sari Wienerman. And we're the hosts of the Bouquet Toss podcast. Today's couples have to juggle so many things, from family expectations to outdated traditions and what's currently trending. So to make it easier, we're going deep to figure out why we do weddings the way that we do, so you can decide what to keep and what to toss from your wedding day plans. You are cordially invited to subscribe to The Bouquet Toss wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcast.com. By the power vested in us, we pronounce you free to plan your day your way.
uh, prison officials had concerns about releasing him. But Erskine was released in 1980 when he went right back to living on the st- in the streets, doing drugs and committing crimes. By 1986, Erskine was 24 years old, but had the mental capacity of an 11-year-old, probably due to a deterioration of his mental state through drug use and mental health issues. Yeah, and he his favorite was uh, sniffing glue, and uh, that does a number on your brain. So, he later told a prison psychologist that he was haunted by a woman's whispering voice, which came out of the walls and doors and gave him dizzy spells. Yikes. So now we're going to dive into the timeline. So on April 9th, 1986, 78-year-old retired school teacher Nancy Eileen Ems was found dead in her flat in southwest London. Uh, Nancy unfortunately suffered from dementia and she had she had home help who came a few times a week to assist her with cleaning and preparing meals. It was she who discovered the body. Nancy was found tucked up in her bed with no obvious marks on her body. So at first, the cause of death was thought to be natural. A doctor called to the scene thought that she'd been dead about three days and signed a death certificate certifying natural causes. It was only after the home help realized that a portable TV set was missing that police were called in. An autopsy revealed that Nancy had been strangled and sexually assaulted. There was also bruising to her chest, suggesting that the killer had kneeled on her while choking her. Forensic scientists discovered a single Afro-Caribbean hair at the crime scene. This gave detectives a lead. The suspect was black, but DNA profiling was in its infancy back in those days, so that's all that it told them. Um, not much to go off of there. On June nope. 9th, 1986, the killer struck again. The body of 67-year-old widow Janet Cockett was found in her flat in Stockwell, just five miles from the location of the Ems murder. A mother and grandmother, she was an outgoing, active, and social woman. She was also found tucked up in her bed, and again, at first, it was thought that she had died of natural causes. But Janet was found in her bed naked with her arms crossed over her chest. Her nightdress had been torn, not cut, in three places, then folded up neatly and placed on a bedside chair. Isn't that interesting? Um, detectives noticed another bizarre feature. Family photographs had been covered up with a cloth. Police also discovered some prints, including a clear palm print on a window and a plant pot at the crime scene. Semen stains were also found, and this was the earliest time that the Metropolitan Police attempted DNA profiling, but it wasn't very successful as it was only a partial profile. An autopsy showed that Cockett had been strangled, and she had two fractured ribs as a result of someone kneeling on her chest. Detectives working both murders compared notes on both of the crimes, but could find little forensic evidence to link them. However, the media began to take interest and were linking them in the press. In the early hours of June 27, 1986, 74-year-old retired engineer Fred Prentice was asleep in his room in a council-run old folks' home in Clapham when he was awoken by a noise. 
Mr. Prentice saw a young man enter his room and then the intruder jumped on him. Ooh, Prentice tried to shout out. Shout out. Uh, but the killer <laughs> placed his finger to his lips in a threatening gesture to the old man to be quiet. He then choked the man with one hand, then relaxed his grip and then began squeezing again like he was toying with him. Yeah. As he kept squeezing, he uttered just one word over and over again. Kill, kill, kill. Mm. Ooh, that's not freaky at all. No. Prentice somehow managed to hit an alarm button on his bedside wall. His attacker jumped off the bed, dragged Fred from the bed, and flung him against a wall, knocking him unconscious. He then escaped through the window. Prentice later said, I was absolutely terrified, but there was nothing I could do. He was sitting on my chest with his fingers clutching at my neck. I thought I was a goner. I shall always have his face in my memory, his terrible grin. He ruined my life. And Fred was able to give police a description of the attacker. The Metropolitan Police began to suspect that they had a serial killer, but they were reluctant to divulge this information because it always causes people to panic. According to the police, they need to balance the need for information to catch a serial killer with the need not to cause widespread public panic. It's a delicate balance, and the decision to go to the public is not made lightly. But on June 28th, 1986, just one day later, the decision was made for them. The bodies of 84-year-old Valentin Gleam and 94-year-old Zbigniew Strabara were found in their adjoining rooms. So they lived right next door to each other in the old right. folks' home. Stockwell Park Crescent. Both men were found tucked up in their beds and fully clothed. The entrance was determined to be an open window. Both men had been manually strangled and Valentine Gleam had been sexually assaulted. So he killed two dudes in one night. One night. Right yeah. next door to each other. What yep. the heck? Yep. And get this, in the middle of the night before the bodies were found, one of the workers in the old folks home had heard the sound of an electric razor, which they thought was kind of strange. The killer also left a washcloth in the bathroom, and the indications were that the killer had taken the time to wash up and shave before he fled the scene. Wow. Talk about brazen. Yeah. Uh, it was at this point that police admitted that they had a serial killer on the loose targeting the elderly. They made an attempt to put together a psychological profile of the killer, something else that was in its infancy in the 1980s. What they knew was that the killer targeted the elderly, both men and women, and the suspect was determined to be a gerontophile. He mm -hmm. was also classified as a process-focused killer. Process-focused killers tend to get off on the method and process of killing rather than the kill itself. Ooh, I just got chills. By the way, they should have called your, your boy over at the FBI. Who's your best I friend? Know. The man that you want to marry? John Douglas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, all, of the all of the victims had been strangled by the killer using only one hand while sitting on the victim's chest. In such elderly victims, unconsciousness would have occurred within 30 seconds and death within two or three minutes. The victims were strangled and sexually assaulted both before and after death then tucked into bed, and then posed as if sleeping restfully. Rewind that back and just listen to how sick that is. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, pretty sick. Detective Chief Superintendent Ken Thompson of Scotland Yard was put in charge of the case. He was given a squad of over 200 detectives to try and find the man that the newspapers now called the Stockwell Strangler. 
they they floated the heat wave killer first and and then settled on the Stockwell Strangler. <laughs> it's a perfect fit. Yeah. So people in Stockwell were extremely frightened. Police staked out dozens of old folks' homes in South London every night, mainly in Stockwell, and there was a large police presence evident throughout the Uh, South London to try to quell the public fears. The police were also cross-checking the palm prints found at the scene of Janet Cockett's murder, but there was no computer database for palm prints back then. They did have a small one for fingerprints, but not for palm prints. So any print matching had to be done manually, which took a lot of time and manpower. Two weeks after his horrific double murder, the strangler struck again. This time, his crime was committed on the north side of the River Thames in Islington, inner London, six miles from Stockwell. This was a geographic anomaly, and it may be that Erxine struck in that area because of the police presence in South London. On July 8th, 1986, 82-year-old widower William Carmen was found dead in his bed. The bedsheet was neatly pulled up under his chin and family photos were turned away from the crime scene, facing the wall or face down. His undershirt was torn in three places, identical to how Janet Crockett's nightdress had been torn. Almost 500 pounds of Mr. Carmen's savings was missing, and there were clear signs of ransacking. And on July 20th, 1986, despite the heavy police presence in Stockwell, the body of 74-year-old William Downs was found dead in his flat at the Overton estate in Stockwell, which was the very same estate that Janet Cockett lived in. William Downs had been strangled, but in this case, Erxine had also shoved paper and cloth down William's throat. Jesus! On the garden gate at the kitchen wall, police were able to lift a clear set of the killer's palm prints that matched the print to the ones found at Janet Crockett's crime scene. However, they still had not been able to match the prints to anyone on file. The final victim was Mrs. Florence Tisdall, an 83-year-old widow who lived at a retirement complex in Fulham. She was found dead by the caretaker on the morning of July 24, 1986. She was a fan of the royal family, just like you, Wendy. Oh, yes. (laughs) And she had had her hair done on the previous day so she could look nice while she was watching the wedding of Prince Andrew and Sarah Ferguson on TV on the 23rd, which she did while drinking a glass of sherry. Oh, I think that's so cute. That's like a nice. Yeah, it is really cute. Uh, She also had several cats, so she would leave the windows open so the cats could come and go as they pleased. That night, while Florence was sleeping, Erxine saw the window ajar and crept in. He again knelt on her chest and choked her to death. A later autopsy revealed that her ribs were fractured during the assault. Florence was found in a nightgown tucked up in bed. However, she was known by her neighbors, who often checked in on her, to sleep on top of the covers in regular clothes. So the evidence at the crime scene suggested that Erskine had stripped off her clothing, sexually assaulted her, and then redressed her in a nightgown and tucked her up in bed. An hour after the killing, he was seen throwing up nearby. Hmm. The witness suspected nothing nefarious, but later said that she would never forget the stare that he gave her when he ran past her. He sounds scary. Yeah, um yeah so <laughs> no, uh, <not> joke, <laughs> man. very very scary um so now we're gonna dive into the investigation and the arrest take it away with 
Finally, the prints found at the Crockett and Downs crime scenes were matched to Kenneth Erskine, who had a criminal record for burglary. But Erskine's whereabouts were not known. It was discovered that he was collecting unemployment benefits and a watch was kept at the office where he signed on. When he came in to collect his check, he was arrested. Mm, gotcha, bitch. Police questioned Erksine about the murders. He claimed that he didn't remember killing anyone, but he may have done so without knowing it. Oh, boy. He later told police a voice in his head told him to kill. It tries to think for me. It says it will kill me if it gets me. It blanks things from my mind. At a police lineup, he was recognized instantly by Frederick Prentice. Examination of Erskine's bank accounts showed that during the three months of the murders, he had paid in around 3,000 pounds, including 300 pounds the morning after the Carmen murder. Erskine was subjected to days of psychiatric evaluations to determine if he was fit to stand trial, but he was not very communicative during the evaluations. He denied symptoms and was not very open. The evaluation was inconclusive. A forensic psychiatrist who interviewed him said that he was the most unusual perp he had ever interviewed. Erskine had no interest in the interviews and tests, and the forensic psychiatrist commented that Erskine was in a world all his own. Doesn't that sound like he's not competent to stand trial? Yeah, yeah, that's what it sounds like to me. Yeah. Okay. Speaking of the trial, now we're going to get into it. <laughs> uh, his his trial opened at the Old Bailey on January 12, 1988. He faced seven counts of murder and one of attempted murder. The trial lasted 18 days and the jury consisted of seven women and five men. His behavior during the trial was just as bizarre as you'd expect. He did not pay much attention to what was going on. He stared out the windows or at his feet, except for when they talked about the crimes, at which time he'd laugh out loud. And he was described as childlike. While in the courtroom in the UK, the layout is a bit different than it is here in the United States. I don't know how it is in Canada or or other parts of the world, but I was under the impression that he was in like this box rather than like sitting at a table facing the judge. Uh, And during the trial, Kenneth sometimes masturbated. Yikes. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) What are you going to do? I mean, you need to see it. If you you got to go, you got to go. You know what I mean? (laughs) Uh, Fred Prentice gave witness testimony and described how Erskine had choked him, then let go, only to start choking him again, basically playing with him, and how the only thing that Erskine ever said to him was the word kill. A pathologist involved in the case reported that from the pattern of injuries, it looked as though all the killings were linked. It appeared that the killer had knelt on the victim's chest, had placed his left hand over the mouth, and had used the right hand to throttle the victims. In four of the seven cases, the victims had been sexually assaulted after death. Yikes. Necrophilia. Yeah, a little little bit of necrophilia going on there. Erskine was found guilty on all eight counts. He was given seven life sentences for the murders and 12 years imprisonment for the attempted murder. The judge recommended that he should serve a minimum of 40 years, which was the longest period of detention ever recommended at the time. Following Kenneth Erskine's uh, conviction, the police closed their files on four more deaths thought to have been caused by the strangler. John Jordan, 57, 
murdered on February 4th, 1986 in Brixton. Charles Quarell, 73 years old, murdered May 6th, 1986 in Southwark. Wilfred Park, 70 years old, murdered May 28th in 1986 in Stockwell. And Trevor Thomas was 75 years old, murdered on July 12th in 1986 in Lambeth. So now we're going to get to where are they now? What do you got, Beth? Have you ever heard the one about the serial killer who saved a dude's life? (laughs) No, tell me all about it. (laughs) (laughs) On February 23rd, 1996, Erskine saved the life of fellow serial killer Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper. Paul Wilson, a convicted robber, attempted to strangle Sutcliffe with the cable from a pair of stereo headphones. Erskine and convicted murderer Jamie DeWitt intervened. Wow. In 2007. Yeah. uh, Interesting uh, turn of events. Um, Yeah. (laughs) In in 2007, Erskine launched a new appeal. The new appeal was based on the fact that he was not found, not of normal mind at the time of the offenses. In 2009, psychiatrist Dr. Andrew Horn, a consultant of Broadmoor for 20 years, said in evidence that Erskine was suffering from severe schizophrenia, which would have diminished his responsibility to a massive degree. Yeah, and it does sound like he he had schizophrenia. So yeah, I mean there was yeah, there was other I'm shit good. wrong with him too. But uh, I mean, not everybody with schizophrenia becomes a serial killer. But uh, exactly, just the, how he talked about hearing voices, and we talked on a different episode about somebody hearing voices, but just the way that they talked about it didn't really sound real to me. But this guy sounded like he really did hear voices. He talked yeah. about like them coming from the walls and the doors and Mm -hmm, yeah mm -hmm. just sounded more real to me so yeah and um i I don't know where i heard this but um he was in his early 20s right when he started Mm -hmm. killing yeah and i've heard that schizophrenia sort of can manifest right when in your early 20s or late teens (laughs) yeah yeah yeah. So. So his crimes were reduced to manslaughter on the grounds of diminished responsibility. During the proceedings, he kept falling asleep in court and snoring loudly. His prison term was converted to a hospital order, and he will remain a patient at Broadmoor Mental Hospital for the rest of his life. Erskine is now 46, going on 47, and one of Broadmoor's most notorious residents. So now we're going to get into what we believe made the killer snap and our takeaways. So I can't wait to hear what you have to say, Beth. (laughs) So um, he definitely had some mental health issues as a child, um, compounded by being abandoned by his parents. And Mm -hmm. I don't know what caused the gerontophilia, since we don't know any of the relationships he had with elderly people. But it could have been an elderly teacher at one of the schools he went to, a grandparent or or somebody else entirely. I don't know. In one documentary, uh, they said it could even be caused by trauma after being forced to kiss a dead relative goodbye at a funeral, something like that. Mm. Yeah. In any case, he obviously had severe mental problems in childhood that were never addressed. His drug use didn't help and uh, schizophrenia. So, yeah, he had a lot of issues that nobody ever helped him with. Right. Right. Yeah. There was never an adequate intervention for this. Right. Right. 
gentleman. Uh, trauma at an early age from abandonment by his parents. I wonder too if his mother maybe used substances while she was pregnant and there was trauma even before he was born. Right, um, yeah. Plus the trauma of the institutions for quote unquote troubled youth. Yeah. Add in Makes everything worse. Yeah. And eventually leading to the manifestation of his schizophrenia. Not an excuse, like Beth says, just several explanations. Uh, not everyone's schizophrenia, trauma, and substance use disorder ends up a serial killer. Uh, his crimes were described as animalistic and wild and predatory. And <laughs> while they were, in fact, very brutal and very violent, I wonder if his crimes would have been described the same way if he were not person of color yeah and the lady who's who described him that way in the documentary i i did not like her i think she was i didn't either I shit. Mean, she, yeah she was just so quick to call him like a wild animal a savage predator and i was like lady this is are do, are you hearing yourself like yeah you yeah sound, you sound crazy. Yeah, she didn't she didn't really seem to be that interested in what caused his problems. She was more interested in just saying that he was an animal so we can just dismiss him. Yeah, yeah, she was very dismissive. Um yeah. and again, I think if there was adequate intervention um for an individual like this when he was in his formative years, you know, this would not we have might happened. not have a case yeah. to talk about. Right. Gerontophilia is a new one for me. I've never me heard too. that term before. I hadn't either. Um, but serial killers, again, tend to prey on vulnerable populations. We just mostly hear about the women and children. But uh, it also sounds like the mid-80s in London was a terrifying time to be alive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does. So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins, convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts, people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh -huh. You go home and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done. And that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found. 24 hours ago, I found out the person I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister, Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris, 
and I'm Emma Ferris, and this is my story, Conning the Con. So now we're going to get into how not to get murdered. If you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. (laughs) (laughs) This segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences. Sometimes we have no suggestions for a particular episode and we'll just offer up generic tips. So on that note, um, because this dude was breaking into people's houses, uh, I found a product on Instagram and discovered that there are several companies out there that sell these devices called portable security door jam locks. You can find them on Amazon or at Home Depot. A few brands, they're not sponsored. So, um, but if they want to be, <laughs> you know where to find us. Uh, there's a buddy bar, door jammer, defender security reinforcement lock, ideal security patio, door security bar, line lock, door reinforcer, night lock, security door, lock barricade. Most of them are portable and you can use them in your hotel room, in your home, or when you stay over at grandma's house. Uh, it's a device you put in the door jam and it prevents unauthorized entry. Nice. Yeah, it's really cool. The door can't be kicked open, nor can the lock get picked. Um, even if the lock is breached, intruders can't enter. So nice. That was a neat product. Yeah. Sounds pretty cool. Thanks for uh, shouting that out. You bet, Beth. Back to you in the studio. <laughs> Just kidding. Now we're going <laughs> to... Now we're going to get to the shout out portion of our show where we shout out any content by people of color or any true crime goodies. Um, So I uh, have two. I hope that's okay. Um, I uh, wanted to shout out how to fix a drug scandal on Netflix about two drugs. Have you heard of, have you seen it in your feed? Mm -mm. It's really good. Hmm. Uh, How to fix a drug scandal on Netflix about two drug lab lab chemists who were up to no good. One was stealing drugs and (laughs) doing drugs on the job. She would like skim them from the, like the crime scene investigation, like evidence room and like smoke meth and like do do all these drugs while she's testing um lab kits uh for like crimes and stuff um the other was lying about tests and falsifying evidence and the truth comes to light and almost fifty thousand cases had to be vacated when it was holy shit And it's a four-part series and is an excellent true crime goodie. Well, I'm going to have to watch that one. That sounds really interesting. It is really good. You can binge it in one day. It's awesome. Um, Lastly is, it's tough out there, guys. And I've gotten into meditation during the choir. um, But I've been sick of some old white man telling me how to focus on my breathing and forget about my problems. (laughs) So... Shut up, old whitey. (laughs) Zip it. Uh, So I discovered a free app for... um, 
Black Indigenous people of color called Liberate. And um, it's free guided meditations that are like 15 to 20 minutes long. You can pick how long you want to do it. Um, And it's guided by uh, the meditations are guided by um, BIPOC um, meditation experts. And I think of them as like my Zen aunties and uncles. And it's been um, like my saving grace during this time. Nice. So uh, check it out. Excellent. Very cool. What do you got? So um, over the past couple of weeks, I've been watching The Spanish Princess on Stars. It's about uh, Catherine of Aragon, who was Henry VIII's first wife. Did he cut her head off? Not Catherine of Aragon, no. She was his first wife and he divorced her. Mm -hmm. That's when they split from Rome and created the uh, Church of England so that uh, he could uh, divorce Catherine of Aragon. Oh, okay. Okay. It was uh, Anne Boleyn who who was uh, beheaded. And then another one, too. But that was later. Oh, I'm Henry the Eighth. I am Henry. Henry the Eighth. I am. I got married to the widow next door. She got married seven times before, and everyone was Henry. Henry. Wait, are we talking about Henry or George? Yes. Henry. Okay. Henry. Yeah. Yeah, that's the right one. <laughs> okay. So as you know, I'm a sucker for period pieces, and I'm fascinated by history, and I watch a lot of these kinds of shows. <laughs> <laughs> I, w- I wouldn't say it's a great show. It's it's entertaining, not totally tr- faithful to history and pretty melodramatic, but uh, it's entertaining. I, I, I like watching these shows. I'm, I'm a goober. <laughs> it's scripted? <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's scripted. Oh, okay. Um, okay. That, that said... Uh, they they did do one thing right. Uh, they included some people of color in the cast in this one. There's a couple of other ones that they did. Are they the, slaves? Uh, well, uh, now this is set during the Tudor reign. So you might think that there were no people of color around in England at that time. But you'd be wrong. Mm. One of Catherine's maids was a black woman named Catalina. And that it's true. Unfortunately, oh, yeah. no, it's true. Unfortunately, history doesn't tell us a lot about her, but the Spanish princess gives her a storyline and a romance with a Moor soldier. They talk about the political climate in Spain, the slaughter and forced conversion of Muslim Moors. So I I just wanted to give that a shout out because I would love to see more stories like that. Cool, cool, cool. I did not know that there were black people in England at that time. Oh. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, very cool. Thank you so much for that shout out. You're welcome. And thank um, you. Yes. Uh, so this has been fun, but yeah, we're, we're drawing to a close now. So um, where can the people <laughs> find us, Beth? Our website is fruitloopspod.com. Our Facebook page is Fruit Loops Pod. And our discussion group is Fruit Loops Pod Discussion on Facebook. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at Fruit Loops Pod. And links to our sources will be in our footnotes. If you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash App. Just Google Fruit Loops Pod Cash App. Or you can become a monthly patron through our Podbean patron page. This will help us pay for things like our website and pod hosting. There's no minimum and no commitment. Even a dollar would help. And as always, we have merch for sale on our website. This is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, guys. It's 
crazy out there. On the morning of August 1, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify and all the usual suspects. Hi, I'm Sean McCabe. And I'm Carrie McCabe. We are, well, married, obviously, (laughs) but we're also obsessed with the darker side of things. True crime stories, alien abductions, poltergeists. If it leaves you scratching your head and keeping those lights on at night, we want to hear about it. That's why we host the podcast Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Every week, we bring our listeners a true story guaranteed to send chills down your spine, from history's most brutal serial killers to the mystery of spontaneous human combustion. Yep, lots of these stories leave unanswered questions behind, and you'll get to poke through the rubble of the evidence with a hardened skeptic and... Someone whose mind is more open to fun. Yeah, that's what I was going to (laughs) say. You can find Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie wherever you get your podcasts, and on social media at Ain't It Scary. Come play with us.